Exceeding Expectations, episode 23. Welcome to another edition of Exceeding Expectations, the podcast for people who want to really excel and give their customers an amazing experience. In this week's episode, I speak with Michelle Mills-Porter, who was caught up in a tsunami in Southeast Asia in 2004, and it led to quite a remarkable transformation in her life and in her business. So let's hear from Michelle Mills-Porter. Here we are, another edition of Exceeding Expectations, and today we have the pleasure of a lady called Michelle Mills-Porter. How are you, Michelle? I'm fantastic, thank you, Tony. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And um, we were just having a a conversation before we started recording, and you've got quite a a history. Um, How would you sum up what you've done over the last 20 years? Well, I guess by the time you get to our age, Tony, everyone's got a few stories. It's just whether you are a storyteller or not in terms of what you do with them, I I guess. The the only Mm. thing that I think I'm really good at is understanding people. Um, And that's I'm on a constant evolution, as we all are, um, in terms of developing that understanding of human beings and the way that we behave and the way we communicate. So that's my area of specialism. And how would you say that came about? I think, if I'm completely honest, I think it was probably through adversity. I think we we learn our biggest lessons from adversity. And right from a very young age, I actually found it quite difficult to communicate with other people. And and that's not from my own doing, really. I was one of those children that was born at the end of August. So when I started school... um, a lot of the friends that I was with in nursery were started before me because they came in the um, in in the school year before. And so they started school and, and I was left behind at, at nursery. And then when I started school, I was too advanced for the year that they put me in. So mm. when it came to moving up a year, instead of just moving me up one year, they moved me up two years. So right at those fundamental years of my life, I was mixed with loads of people that um, that I didn't know. Um, mm. And I got into the situation where I was only allowed to play if I was it in TIG or, you know, if I was the wolf in what time is it, Mr. Wolf? Those are the only times that people would let me play. They kind of kept me at arm's length because I was a newbie. Um, and so right from an early age, I was always thinking, what what is it? What can I do to fit in? What can I do to build rapport with people? What is going to make me acceptable? So I guess the journey started way back then. So instead of just kind of withdrawing and being, you know, feeling bad, feeling bad about being bullied, you, you, what you try to analyze it at that young age? Yeah, I, I suppose that was a subconscious thing. I've never been bullied. So even though I was different I was very dark skinned as a child because my daddy's half Burmese um, and I was very very dark skinned as a child and that was unusual so of course I got the nicknames I got called also chinky and things like that and um, and so I was I had this adversity around me you know people wanting to pick fights and stuff but I'll, I'll never say I was bullied because you know I, I, I never was I was always a survivor it just made me a little bit gave me a little bit more attitude I suppose so I guess I was I was always used to standing on a soapbox and having an opinion 
and and celebrating being different. In fact, it was so funny, Ron. I was um I was actually thinking um I was talking with somebody recently and we were talking about how it is being different. And I looked back on some old photos and there's a photo of me at 10 years old. And I've got the biggest Michael Jackson Afro perm you've ever seen. And Hmm. everyone that sees it, Tony, thinks that it's a wig. And it's not. It's actually my hair. At 10 years old, my parents let me have um, a perm. So I turned my dead straight um, black shiny hair into this huge afro and I rocked it I mean <laughs> I was I was cock of the walk I loved it I loved being different and so how did that develop into your you know when she started work what did you use that or did you actually sort of go out to try to learn more about that no not really um I kind of I had little bits of adversity throughout my life you know um I joined the Air Force at 17. I, I swapped schools again and went through exactly the same thing at high school. And then I joined the Air Force at 17. Um, and although that was loads of fun, there was there was a lot of conflict there as well, especially as there's, there's kind of 80 men to one woman in the Air Force. Now, if you imagine you are um, on an Air Force station with working with all of these men, and even though I might think it's normal, the wives of the men didn't. And mm. there's a lot of animosity and a lot of conflict that you have to learn to to cope with there. And mm. when I came out of the Air Force, I kind of fell into a sales career. So I, I guess I was learning about communicating, and I was lucky enough to, to start um, – actually, my sales career started in telesales – um, and I was selling advertising space over the phone. Now, what a lot of people don't know, Tony, is that when you communicate in in an environment where you're stripped of the biggest attribute you have, which, you know, human beings use their visual sense more than any other. When you strip that away from someone, if they can communicate without that visual sense, that actually makes them really good communicators. So we're almost learning to communicate blindfold. And so that's where I learned a lot about preempting what people want and what people need and learning to read them a little bit better. Um, and I guess that that sales career, I, I clawed my way up through that career and had a very colourful career. It must be said, I worked in some pretty, pretty tough environments. But my last employed position was as head of client development for a branding agency in London. And I absolutely loved it. But I was doing exactly the same thing. I was picking up the phone and building rapport with complete strangers in a very short space of time. So that's where I exercised those muscles. Um, And it wasn't really until the tsunami and being involved in the tsunami that I took my whole life took a different trajectory. And just for for the people listening who, you know, sadly they weren't expecting that to to come. So let's go into that. So you you mentioned to me before that you just went on a holiday to Sri Lanka. So do you want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. Well, I'd started my own company by then and we were winning massive amounts of awards. We made a, a huge splash um, in in the industry because we were the only marketing agency ever that worked on results only. We were paid on results only. 
Um, and so, of course, we were, you know, we, we caused a bit of a splash. And we were, we, we'd won a customer care, a customer service award. We'd won a best small business of the, of the year award. We'd won investors in people. And we were literally riding the crest of a wave. Um, excuse the pun. <laughs> Didn't even do that one, Tony. Um, so we decided, me and my partner decided to go on holiday and celebrate with a couple of exotic holidays. And we learned to dive in the UK and we found ourselves on a diving holiday in Sri Lanka at Christmas 2004. So we literally spent three days on holiday before we were caught in the biggest natural disaster in our living history. And, and that was um, a really poignant moment for me because being involved in that actually did change the whole trajectory. It put it, it kind of, it's almost like going to see a chiropractor. It, it, the whole experience put me back in line with my true values and I wasn't expecting that. And so how, how quickly or what, what did you do after you returned to the UK? What, what was different? Well, I think just to explain why it realigned me um, to just to preempt what happened when I got back. I think a lot of people say, oh, you know, you're involved in the tsunami. That must have been dreadful. And of course it was. It was the most horrific experience of my life because 250,000 people lost their lives and the same amount of people lost their lives afterwards. It was massive, but it was actually the realisation um, that I wasn't in line with my core values. That's what had a massive impact on me. When you're in a, a, a situation of true adversity, what happens is you see right through to a person's core. We don't spend time putting on the mask that we wear on a daily basis when you're in a life or death situation. So you literally saw people's values at play. And it was astonishing. So it actually became the most enlightening time of my life as well. When I finally made it back to the UK, I went back to, to my company and I, I walked into the boardroom and I looked at all of these awards and all of these testimonials and, uh, you know, and, and photographs of us at champagne dinners and all this kind of stuff. And I just felt physically sick. And I had no desire to do what I'd been doing before. And for me, what I realized is that my true values, which were all about um, consideration for other people, ethics and morals, those were the things that I was interested in. And my business um, just wasn't important to me anymore. Um, and so I threw myself into the Hikadua Village Fund, which is the charity that me and my friends started um, and, and literally just started to try and raise as much money and awareness and, and help to get these people who had saved our lives to get them back on their feet and, and do whatever we could to try and repay that. And so that's when I started to change my life. And that's when I started to learn just how important human behaviour is. And that's what set me on this whole new trajectory. So I literally I just threw myself into learning as much as I could about human behaviour. So although there is this backstory of always having an interest, it wasn't really until that point that I suddenly thought, this is more than an interest. I need to understand what it is that's happening here. So I just learned as much as I could about, about human beings, about why we act 
the way we do? Why do we behave like that? Um, and, and that's what led me on the journey um, that I've been on ever since. So when you, you said you were, you were learning about human behaviour, so you were learning sort of about like, um, like psychology and what I'm doing courses and reading books and so on or what what were you specifically doing I'm not really academic so I always tend to go down a different route Tony and I became a practitioner um, and a behavior profile practitioner so I learned about behavior profiling tools and analyses and it's literally through doing that made me an expert so I became a master behavior profile um, profiler and I've done thousands and thousands of profiles on people and every time you deliver the results of the profile your understanding um, just deepens a little bit further when you've done thousands upon thousands of them you start to um, to understand a whole different level that then took me on to understanding about values because when you do a behavior analysis you understand, you know, how you're behaving. It's all about the how. How do I behave? How do I change my behavior? How do I build rapport with other people? How do I taper my behavior um, in order to fit in better? But what you don't understand necessarily is why. And I needed to get to the why. So then I started to learn more about people's values as a human being. Where does that come from? How much of it is nurture? How much of it is nature? And how do we change those values if we want to and that led me on a completely different path um and 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 amalgamating the three and putting them together with all the previous stuff that i'd done um it just led me to to, to now doing these these three areas of communication that i specialize in so one of them is non-verbal communication um and that's obviously all of the body language, the facial expressions, that kind of stuff, um, and even the, the written word. Then there's the non-visual communication, which is all about how to communicate over the phone and, you know, over um, podcasts and, and, and these kind of things. And then there's the behaviour and values, which is the third arm. Um, and, and that's where I am now, amalgamating all three and putting them together um, in in a, a new form of analysis. So do you um, coach people on a one-to-one basis or do you just run workshops or how does that work? No, well, I tend to work with organisations. So, for instance, um, I work with the Premiership football team, as an example, and I will go in there um, to help them with their team, to help their team to increase their performance. What I end up doing, of course, is working with every person in that team on a one-to-one level. Um, and that's the way that you get to understand people's real core values, what motivates them, what drives them. Once they understand it and understand the people around them, then you can start to put that team together and make them or help them to unleash that hidden power that they have within them that that has maybe not been used to its to its full extent and when you get um an organization or a team full of people they're all learning to do this together then the key thing is to put all of that performance uh, together to put all of those skills in the same pot and what happens then is you get this incredible release of energy and performance when um, people are creating something bigger 
than the sum of its parts. So I guess it's a it's a, a two-way answer. I work with organisations to help their teams perform better. I end up working one-to-one with those people. But of course, I also do open workshops for organisations to come along as well. And I would imagine, I mean, obviously you'll correct me on this, but when if you're working with a, you know, a large group of people, like you've just mentioned, there's going to be such a, they're all going to be different in terms of, you know, their personalities and whatever. And I would presume that some of them will be quite skeptical about this and others would be far more open. So how difficult would it be if there are people that are skeptical about this to, to work with them? Do you know, again, Tony, that's something that I've really worked on. Um, I'm a professional speaker as well. And, you know, when you're standing in front of an audience, speakers will know this. You can pick out who is with you and who isn't just by their body language. You can tell whether someone's going to be open to this kind of subject or not based largely on their behaviour. Um, and, you know, even what positions they hold in what organisations. So if you've got an audience full of lawyers, they're going to behave very differently to an audience full of performers or to a charity. There are um, it's not pigeonholes, but there are patterns in human behaviour. And we are drawn to uh, vocations that suit um, what's comfortable for us. So it stands to reason that you're going to find these patterns. When you're working with a group of people, it's very important when you're presenting to them initially to be able to identify which ones are going to be um, less likely uh, to accept this off the cuff and which ones are going to be raving about it and maybe a little bit too enthusiastic. And and you have the, the expertise is required for you to be able to taper the enthusiasm of some people and, you know, and give the people who are a little bit more sceptical the science and the proof and the evidence that they need before they're on board. And you have to get everyone on the same level. Once you've done that, you've cracked it because then we can accept each other and work together to achieve that performance that we're after. And is there, are there ever occasions where there are just some people who just won't open up and they just refuse to believe in, in this kind of thing? I've never had it happen, Tony, and I've been doing this for many, many years. There are people who don't want to do anything moving forward, um, because, you know, so they've been on the the workshop and they've done the training, but, you know, they say, Michelle, I don't I don't need to do this. I don't feel that I want it. Um, and that's that's great. You know, we will just feed that back um, to the management team, to the leadership team. But my job is to is to tell the leadership team why that person is feeling like that. And it's very easy to identify. Um, and then, you know, whatever development program we put in place for them is going to be reflective of that so if they don't want any more one-to-one stuff that's absolutely fine we'll work with what they want and what they need but we always have the answers because the answers are in the analyses and so the, the reverse to that so i you know i said about the people who won't open up but the people who really kind of like see wow i just didn't realize any of this before how does that help them how how do they go forward from there well i'm gonna pick on adrienne a really good friend of mine i hope she doesn't mind me mentioning her she's one person like that so i was called into her organization to help her with her team um with their personal development and with working together and she was the managing director of this organization um 
And we found out very quickly um, that she was just brilliant. She loved it, absolutely loved it. And she said to me, Michelle, you're the first person that's ever given me permission to be me. And, of course, it was nothing to do with me. It was to do with her perception of what was required of her. And somehow having this analysis in front of her in black and white, saying this is who you are, these are your prominent qualities, um, it just opened up a world of possibility for her. What she did is she actually left that organisation because it turned out that the position she was in um, she was actually being quite oppressed in that position. And what she did is she left the organisation and she started on her own. And she now has a really successful consultancy. And I've literally watched her flourish and grow and spread her wings. Um, and, And that's what I love seeing. So when people get this, if they decide to apply what they've learned, if they decide to take it forward and use it, to help build rapport with other people and to develop it, then they can literally flourish. Being in flow with who you authentically are is the most important thing. And when you are truly in flow with who you really are, the floodgates just opened and and the world is your oyster. You can achieve anything you want to. Because you mentioned before we started recording about you use a tool, I think it was called the People Reader. Yeah. How do you use that? How does that work? Well, the People Reader is is a tool that I've just created. It's an analysis. Um, and this is, um, it's a rapport building analysis. But what it does is it amalgamates all of those things that I specialize in. Um, so let me explain. Let's imagine that you and I had um, met each other. Uh, we've done, we've sent a couple of emails to each other. And, and on the phone, you say to me, Michelle, do you know what? I really like what you do. Why don't you put a proposal to me? That's the point in time that I would use this analysis, the people reader. But I would do the people reader on you without you knowing. So I go online, I access one of these analyses, and it asks me just 18 questions about you. And I have to answer questions about what you wear. So what kind of, you know, how do you present yourself? When we met, what were you wearing? What was your body language like? It asks me questions about um, how you open your emails, how you close your emails. Um, It says a little bit about what kind of things interest you and, and what turns you off you know what is it that doesn't build rapport with you but they're very simple questions and you just pick Mm. um you know with multiple choice out of these eight questions what you get um is an immediate eight page report that tells me exactly how to build rapport with you so for instance it might say when you meet tony and when you when you've had that that meeting make sure that you hug him and give him a kiss on the cheek don't just go for the sturdy handshake or it might say the opposite it might say this is how you start your emails this is how you finish your emails when you talk to Tony over the phone these are the kind of words that you should use um, and these are the kind of things to steer clear of when you follow up the proposal this is how much time and space you give him or you know how close you are with him and it tells you even how to close that deal so this eight-page report tells you exactly how to convert that person who is a prospect into a client. And it's all about rapport building. It takes into consideration the body language element, the all those three elements I spoke about, the non-visual 
um, the nonverbal and the behaviour and values of that person. Um, and, and I just think it's astonishing. I've just had um, the test pilot results back and the reliability figures, um, and it is 9.5 out of 10, which I've never seen in my history. I'm so proud of it. I could burst. And so what, so you actually created this program, did you? I did. I built it from scratch. Wow. Okay. And so how many people have you used? It's literally so just launched. In fact, it's not even launched. It's a, it's a in kind of soft launch. So at the moment, I've used right. it with my current clients, but mainly with VIP test pilots. And I think it's important, Tony, when you're going to launch something like this, you have to have proof. You have to have reliability figures. Yeah. So if you came to me and said, Michelle, you know, how reliable is this? I can show you the figures yeah. and say out of all of these people that filled in a reliability report, it's got 9.5 out of 10, which means that one person perhaps yeah. thought he doesn't always want to give a 10 and everyone else thought it was marvellous. <laughs> kind of results have uh the people well i actually i did this on one of my clients recently and they were going into a board meeting with a particularly problematic person um and they this wasn't a client that they needed to convert this was actually someone they wanted to build rapport with um and so they came to me and they did the people reader with me. Um, and what that did is it showed them exactly what they should take out of their email, what they should add into their proposal um, and how they should behave during the board meeting as well. All It's all there. All the evidence is there. They tailored everything they did. And this managing director said to me afterwards, Michelle, that saved the board it was that, you know, it was the, the people reader, the analysis results that told me what I subconsciously already knew that I needed to do. But it gave me the um, the, the confidence uh, to actually do, uh, to put in practice those things. And it, it saved the it saved the day. So I can't really think of a better example than that. And, and how different would this be to something like yeah, the Myers-Briggs and DISC profile in Hogan? Those well, it gives you the answers and nothing else gives you the answers. Um, that might sound, and I, I guess this is the reason that I created it. If you want to do a behaviour profile, you can't do a behaviour profile on someone else. They have to do the behaviour profile. Mm. So if I said to you, Tony, before we do business with each other, I'd like you to do a behaviour profile for me. Would you do that? The chances are you'd say no. <laughs> Um, it's not really, yeah. you know, something that you can do on other people. It's something you do yourself. So how am I going to mm. expertly know what behavior profile you are if I don't, if I'm not a master practitioner? Because you can't guess what behavior mm. people are. You can't ask someone else mm. to, you know, to fill out a profile. So what this does is it asks me about my opinion of you. What are you showing me in terms of all of the mm. um hints and tips that you're giving me your body language your facial expressions your tone of language the way you write it's all of those elements and what it does is it gives you these eight page report of answers it's not you know it's nothing else apart from the answers this is how you build rapport with this person so what i found with one company that i've tested this with is the salespeople were very high level so they've been in sales all of their lives 
Um, and they're the last people to want to sit down in a classroom, learn about body language, learn about behaviour profiling, learn about facial expressions. Why should they? They're successful salespeople. They've been doing this all of their lives. So actually, this the people reader has been a brilliant tool that gives them the answers without having to go on any training or anything like that. Now, I know this might sound manipulative, but what happens is that this tool is actually like the stabilizers, because what we're doing is when they're thinking about, okay, when I fill out the people reader for this particular client, I know what it's going to ask me. So they're they're learning to understand how to capture that information ready in preparation for filling out the people reader. So what they're doing on a subconscious level is they're learning to read people anyway. They're learning to build rapport by reading them, understanding how to communicate with them in the most effective way for the best results. And they're doing that on a subconscious level. So it's all about building rapport, though, Tony. It's not about anything else apart Mm. from building rapport. If you can preempt what your client, your potential client wants and what they need, and and you can give that before they have to ask for it, then what you do is you create a massive amount of subconscious rapport. And and that's something, Mm. once you've got that relationship, it is virtually impenetrable by the competition. And so where do you see this going? What will you will you be teaching other people to to do this to help others? Or I mean how how would this sort Yeah, of there's many ways that I can do it. I always keep I have to keep my hand in there, Tony. I have to deliver it myself because that's where you hmm. you're at the cutting edge. Um and so I don't, you know, I don't want to be in the background. I wanna be out there delivering it, seeing the results, improving it, coming out with more tools, but I also have an army of practitioners that go out there and do this stuff. The most important thing when I came back from the tsunami is I wanted to be able to help people to understand each other better, to forgive each other for more stuff, to try and understand why we are the way we are. And the only thing I wanted to do was to share that with as many people as I can So when I have practitioners that go out there and help people to unleash their magnificence and help teams to create better performance, they're doing that using the tools and the methodology that I use. They're doing exactly that. And it's far more people that I could reach on my own that are being reached in that way. From what you were saying, once you have a much clearer understanding of someone and, you know, their wants and needs and likes and dislikes and so on, it's therefore much easier to not just meet their expectations, but to really give them what it is that they want. I think the thing is predicting it. And this comes right back to the customer service thing, you know, Um, to be able to predict what someone wants and someone needs and, and give them that before they ask for it. That's the point in time when let's imagine it's you and I, and I've just given you something. I said, Tony, I think this might be useful for you. Um, And you think, Mm. I was just thinking that, but I didn't even have to say it. Mm. Michelle gets me. She understands me. She Mm. talks my language. She listens. She cares. And so therefore, on a subconscious level, you build massive rapport with me. And if anyone else tries to come in and say, well, Tony, can I do this for you? You're likely to say, no, I'm sorry. I've got a great relationship with Michelle. She's the only person that delivers this for me. That's what I want people to achieve. 
that relationship that has longevity, that relationship that is long term and and keeps giving, keeps reciprocating, keeps giving. Um, And that's, you know, that's really the key to all of this stuff. Earlier, we were talking about, um, I mean, you've been a member of the Professional Speakers Association, the PSA, for about four years now. And and you were telling me at this year, at, well, the convention a few months ago, you won the um, what was it, Bill, the com- comedian of the convention? it's officially it? called um, the it's a quake actually, uh, which is a, a lovely drinking bowl, and it's called the Kenny Harris Badger of Honor for Comedy Award, um, and that um, that's sure. respect to um, Kenny Harris, who we lost several years ago. And uh, this award was actually created in his honour. And so what did you have to do to win that? Stand up. <laughs> Absolutely stand up. It's the first I thought, do you know what? I thought there are, I've not been in the PSA that long. I've, you know, I kind of, I'm like me, I, I come in, I'm loud and I'm big and I do stuff and I get awards and this, that and the other. Um, and I do it really quickly. And there are some people that don't really know me very well. So, um, I thought this year what I'm going to do is I'm just going to get on stage and I'm just going to build rapport with some people that don't know me. I'm going to be a bit self-deprecating um, and, and just make friends with some of my tribe that I've not reached yet. And that's the only thing I had in mind when I did it. Um, and what I delivered was just a series of, of stories about what a buffoon I am. So it was just it was real stories. It was just real stuff that's happened in my life um and I just delivered it in a comedy set style um and bowled me over it went and won the national award so I was shocked and thrilled in equal measure and you've got no comedy background at all no I I yeah no I haven't I mean I was called um the, the the wonderful carol isles who i loved dearly she was the first person to ever say that i was an entertainer um so i always put comedy in my in my training and in my speaking and i guess i hid behind it really if i was nervous more comedy would come out so i always had that element there but of course Um, When you're talking about something like the tsunami and the lessons that you've learned, that's a very very serious subject. There's no room for comedy there. So most people in the PSA especially, they might know me for that stuff and they might not know that, you know, that I can be funny as well. So it was great to kind of show that side um, and, and actually to get acceptance from your tribe. Um, in that way was just the most amazing thing um, and it was wonderful you know uh, I, it was caught on video so I've played that a couple of times you know and it, it, it's really uplifting to be able to uh, to get that love from your tribe is just fantastic. Uh, how has that helped you move forward? I think if that was the case. I'll, I'll be honest Tony I think as a performer, as a speaker, you have to have an air of confidence. You have to have maybe even an air of arrogance in terms of self-belief. So 
I'm not going to say that I didn't think I was funny. Um, Of course I thought it was funny. Did I think I could win it? Maybe on a subconscious level I thought it was good enough because otherwise I wouldn't have bothered getting up on stage. We all think we're good at what we do. But to get the audience tell you that you're good at what you do, that is something that we all crave, that we all live for. It's the only real measurement is the external um, factors of people saying, yeah, do you know what, Michelle, you are funny. So now, even when my husband tries to crack a joke or anyone around me tries to crack a joke, I just say, you know, well, I'm the one with the award, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet that goes down well with your husband. <laughs> he's the funniest one. Naturally, he's got funny bones. It's what's kept us together for 25 years. Yeah. Um, I love him to bits and he's right. hysterical. So I've only I can only really milk this for a few more months until I have to hand over the quake yeah. for the next winner. So I'm gonna milk it, Tony. <laughs> what um what are your thoughts on the you know, so this podcast is called Exceeding Expectations. It's, it's about trying to give your customers a, a great experience. I mean, what are your thoughts on I that think it's area? um it's just trying to understand how they work. Now, I had a, a conversation with Stephanie Bosch earlier on, lovely new member of the PSA. She's absolutely gorgeous. And she reminded me of something. She said, Michelle, when people say treat other people the way that you would want to be treated, they're wrong. And she's right. They are wrong. You should treat people the way that they want to be treated, which might not necessarily be the way that you want to be treated. Because if you take that as your mantra, then all you're doing is building rapport with people that are the same as you. If you want to build rapport with people that aren't the same as you, you need to try and understand how they want to be treated. How do they want to be communicated with? What is going to make them think, do you know what? This is the person I want to do business with. This is the person I want to interact with. Um, And if you can crack that, if you can understand other people, and deliver what they want, not what you want, that's when you build that massive rapport and and make the relationship work. Okay, Michelle, if people want to find out more about you and the things you do, where, where would they go um, to? Well, my website is MMP. Um, it's Michelle Mills Porter. And people know me as MMP, um, the people reader. Uh, and I'm also on LinkedIn. So it's very easy. The, the good thing is there's no one else on the planet called Michelle Mills Porter. So I'm quite lucky in that respect. So you have, I think that's called a, is it a Google whack. I think that is something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that phrase before. It sounds a little bit saucy, actually, Toby. I'll have to look that up. You go, um, go, on to, go on to YouTube and uh, search for Dave Gorman. Um, and just put Dave Gorman Google, and I think he, he came up with a whole comedy routine about a phrase where there's only one result in Google, really? yeah, especially like a name or, or something along those lines. Yeah, it's quite a funny, funny yeah. sketch. Yeah, no, I, I will definitely love that. I've just written it down, and I do like I do like a bit of Dave Gorman. But yes, I'm the only Michelle Mills Porter on the planet. Thank God, says my husband. And just one bit of clarity, you mentioned about the, you said your, your website was um, MMP. Is that MMP.com? Um, dot, hold on a second. <laughs> Shall I double check it just to make sure? Um, it's www.mmp.uk.com. .uk. 
dot com. Okay. And I'll put all of those links into the show notes as well. So yeah, so wow. anyone who didn't catch that, you just look in the show notes and you'll find all the links that Michelle mentioned. Well, thank you very much for your time, Michelle. I really appreciate it. And um, I'm sure, uh, I think there's going to be a lot of people listening to, who have listened to this will be very inquisitive and, and probably want to know a lot more about, certainly about the people read it all, as well as the other things you mentioned. Well, I certainly hope so. It's been a, a thrill speaking with you. It doesn't feel like work when you're having fun, does it? Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you very much, Michelle. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Take care, Tony. Next week in episode 24, we hear from a lady called Sydney Wong, who's based over in Canada. And she had some remarkable experiences when she worked in Silicon Valley at a very young age. So that's next week with Sydney Wong. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Exceeding Expectations. Please do leave us a review. That would be really useful. And I look forward to speaking with you next week. Mm-hmm.